For regulars here this morning, you're about to get a little bit weirded out. Just so you know, it is me. But this may be the most positive message I've ever preached. I don't think there's a single moment of being slapped in the face this morning. Uh, If Damien was here, he would probably walk out. Um, But I think the message is consistent with the passage, okay? So... That's, I just want to start. This is an incredibly positive message this morning. So I want you to think, what is the happiest, most joyful you have ever been in your whole life? just want you to cast your mind back. I'll give you a little minute. The most happiest, joyful you've ever been in your whole life. For, you, for many of you, myself included, it's Probably Sunday afternoon, the 28th of September, 1986, when Parramatta last won a grand final, right? That's, that's where you all went, right? Look, I'm not that shallow. You're probably thinking of the 2005 State of Origin series when Andrew Johns won the series. For New- no, anyway, seriously, maybe it is the joy of marriage or maybe it was having a child. Maybe it was your child leaving home. Now, I don't know. Like, what, what is those moments of joy that you, you think about when you reflect back upon? Well, last week I asked the question if you thought Peter's introduction was hope-filled or not. Chosen exiles who are scattered. And I suggested, yes, it is hope-filled because of who does the choosing. You are chosen by Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and you are chosen to live for his glory forevermore. And so how could it be anything other than positive to be chosen by Christ? And so it does have this positive ring to it, despite the fact they're exiles, despite the fact they are scattered, they're chosen by the one who has conquered all. So it has to be positive, right? Well, this morning, we're going to see the deep joy, the deep confidence that the reality of having been chosen by Christ brings. So that's where Peter moves to. If his opening line was positive because of who chose us, then this is going to be a celebration of what Jesus has done. Okay, so that's what we're looking at together. The world will continually pull at your affections. The world will continually try and bring you and your heart's desires after the things of the world. And that's why we regularly need the Word of God slapping us around the face and realigning our hearts back to the things of God to bring us under the conviction of the Spirit. But this morning is about boosting your affection for Christ, which is another way of changing your heart to overcome the world's desires, okay? So we want to boost our affection for Jesus. So last week, we looked at 1 Peter 1, verses 1 to 2, uh, only two verses. This week, we're going crazy with a long passage. We're looking at three verses. So 1 Peter 2, 3 to 5 this morning, if you have your Bible there with you. 1 Peter 1, sorry, 3 to 5. If you want to open up there, that's roughly where we'll be staying. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Amen. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter begins with the theme that will dominate this paragraph. God is to be blessed. Now, it's early on in the message, but we're going to go on a little excursus already. What does it mean for us to bless God? Now, if you think about it, when we would say that we have been blessed by God it normally means that we've received something, doesn't it? You know, I, I feel blessed because, uh, you know, my children are healthy, or I, I feel blessed because uh, things are going well in my life. I feel blessed because of this promotion I got. I feel blessed because of the friends that I have. So it's always about what we've received. And so when we bless God, what exactly are we giving Him? You know, God feels blessed because I gave him, what can I give God? Right, so it's important we understand what does it mean for us to bless God, which is what Peter is actually saying here. Well, a few verses really, really help us understand that, give us a little bit of context on what this means. So I'm just going to bounce around a couple of verses pretty quickly, follow along if you're fast, if not, just look them up later. Deuteronomy 8.10, listen to what it says. When you eat and are full, you will bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. When you eat and are full, you will bless the Lord for the good things he has given you. What does this mean? It means when you enjoy the blessings of the good things of God, in this case, a good and fertile land which produces a good and fertile crop, which produces a good meal, and you sit and you partake of that good meal, and you feel satisfied. And your heart begins to thank God for His goodness. Right? So the good you've received from God leads to a sense of thankfulness back to God, a sense of joy and praise to God for the good things that He has given you. And we get that, don't we? Anyone here at the end of a really good meal, sit down on the couch afterwards, pull out the quiz from the Australian newspaper, and, uh, and you sit down and you feel content, right? You feel relaxed. It should come back to God, the provider of all good things, shouldn't it? That's what this passage is saying. Psalm 103, 2. My soul... Bless the Lord and do not forget all his benefits. My soul, bless the Lord. Don't forget all his... In other words, as you enjoy the benefits of knowing God, as you enjoy the feeling of grace, of, of being forgiven, as you enjoy the, the security and peace that exists outside of this world, as you have the comfort of knowing that Christ is with you to the very end of the age, as you enjoy these things, as you think about the benefits of God, it results in what? Thankfulness. Praise to God. Well, let's spell it out completely for us. Psalm 34.1. Psalm 34.1. 
I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. What does it mean for us to bless the Lord? It means to recognize his worth, his goodness, his provision, his grace, his kindness. And when your soul responds in thankfulness to God, when you want to sing out his praises, regardless of whether or not you can sing, when your soul is caught up in his worth, that is what you are giving God. That is what it means to bless him. Right? So Peter is saying, as his people, we bless the Lord because our soul cries out in his praise and a celebration of his worth and a thankful heart in what he has given you. Bless the Lord, amen? Right? That's what it means for us as his people to bless the Lord, to be in that state of a thankful heart. So when we sung together this morning, we were blessing the Lord. We were singing of his praise. We were singing of his worth. But deeper than that, it's about our whole life. That contented feeling, as I spoke about earlier, when you're just sitting down, you're thinking, God is good. That's blessing the Lord, right? It's that heart of thankfulness for Christ. So Peter says, blessing, thankfulness and praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. And that gets our heart in the right place. Why? Why should it be filled with thankfulness and praise for God? Well, this is what Peter goes on to explain. So he says, you should be overwhelmed with wanting to bless God, thankfulness and praise of God. And then Peter goes on to say, why? Why is it we should be overwhelmed with thankfulness to God? Because it's a real question. Not everyone feels this way about God, you know different understandings of God. Some have a very negative view of God, don't they? Roman Catholicism has us trying to earn our salvation. So it's a merit-based system. And this is why in Roman Catholicism you will often have people leaving in their will their house to the church. The reason they leave their house to the church is it's a last desperate effort to try and get good things in your favour. It's trying to earn that last bit of respect in the kingdom, right? So, so it's, it's a trying to earn the favor of God. It's not a thankfulness. It's not a praise. It's a desperate attempt to earn God's favor. Islam, false religion, Muhammad said he didn't know if he was saved, right? So Muhammad, the, the key figure of Islam, said he had no idea if he was saved. If Muhammad didn't know he was saved, then Islam offers no hope. Right? It has no hope. Now, like I said, it's a false religion. We, we're not too concerned with that. But nonetheless, it offers no one a sense of blessing God, of praise of God, of thankfulness of God, because it has no hope. In Buddhism, Hinduism, you have a desperate hope that you might be, in, you might be reincarnated slightly up the chain. But you have no idea. It offers no hope. But Peter says to Christians, God is blessed. Your heart sings with praise and thankfulness. You are overwhelmed in your very soul with a thankful heart. Why? 
Why are we so overwhelmed? Well, that comes straight away, doesn't it? In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. Now, this new birth here is a tricky word. It's used twice in the entirety of Scripture, and both times it's here by Peter. So it's an interesting word to kind of do a bit of a study on. But anyway, it means that we are birds, that we are born again by God, by the Word of God in 123. But, but more or less what it means is it is by the will of God that you are birthed. How many of you take credit for having been born? Right? Anyone here? Like, that was my effort. No, right? And so the emphasis here is in the father's role of producing children. We are born again of the father. So in context, it's saying the father, in his great mercy, in his great kindness and compassion, caused you to be born again. The emphasis is on the father's work and not on us. Why? Why is the emphasis here to say the Father's will cause you to be born again and not on yourself? Why? Because you have nothing to offer but praise and thankfulness for the Father who caused you to be born again. In His great mercy, in His great kindness, He caused you to be born again, results in blessing God, in thankfulness and praise of the Father. Let me ask you a question. If you had a heart attack, and you drop dead on the floor. And Sano here rushes over and he does CPR. And he brings you back. And you wake up and the first thing you say to Sano is, I really nailed that. I was all over that CPR. No, you were dead, right? You're not going to say to Sano, I'm so thankful to myself for the great effort I put in. You're going to be overwhelmed with thankfulness to him, aren't you? Thank you for saving me. Thank you for, for performing CPR. Thank you for what you did. And that's what Peter is saying. The emphasis here is you are born of the Father, and your heart says, thank you, all praise to the Father for his mercy. Amen? That is the emphasis of our passage. So what have we been born into? And Peter tells us, firstly, he says, it is a living hope. Again, an interesting phrase when you think about it, a living hope as opposed to a dead hope. Well, yes, that's true, isn't it? Don't we all have the ability to hope in vain? My parents, as long as I can remember my whole life, I've had the lotto on every week. Right? It's a hope in vain. You're one in hundreds of millions of chances of ever getting it. You give them far more money than you're ever going to get back from them. But we have this hope. It's a dead hope. Right? People have all these kinds of weird, dead hopes. Hope in the wrong person. Hope in the wrong desire. Hope in karma to somehow make it all work out. These are dead hopes. They're not grounded in any sense of truth or reality. They are a dead hope that doesn't go anywhere. I can hope 
tomorrow morning I will wake up thin. It's a dead hope, right? It's not going to happen. I can hope in it all I like. I can tell you all about my dream. It's not going to change anything. It's a dead hope. Peter says there are many things that are dead hopes in the world, but our hope is a living hope because our hope is in the living God, Jesus Christ, right? It's a living hope. Our hope is genuine, real, certain, alive. Remember, Peter is writing to the church of Asia Minor who were going through persecution. So he is writing to the persecuted church and he is saying to them, yes, your persecution is real, but your hope is living. Your circumstances are difficult, but your hope is living because your hope is in the living God and your hope is secured in and through the person of Jesus Christ. Right? So, yes, all of the difficulties are true, but your hope is living. In this world, church, we will have trials, will we not? Difficulties, troubles, suffering. And Jesus says, take heart because I've overcome the world. Right? Our living hope. Now for another footy analogy. I don't usually put too many in there, uh, but, you know, so be it. If you want to, just substitute in any other inferior sport in your head as we go through this. But imagine you're playing a grand final. You're up 60-0 with five minutes left to play. You're still in the game. The next five minutes, you're going to get hit. You're going to feel tired. You might even get an injury. You're battered. You're bruised. You've got tape around your split eyebrow. You've got tape around your boot to keep your sprained ankle, but you're still on the field. The pain and fatigue are real. The bruises are real. The knocks that keep happening are real. But so is the smile on your face. Because you know the battle is won. You know when the full-time siren goes that victory is assured. You know in a short amount of time the pain will be gone because you will rest in the celebration of victory. Your sprains your bruises, your aches and pains are there, but you battle on because you know glory awaits. Right? This is what happens. Your hope in Christ is much more certain than that. Peter says you are born into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now remember that God sits outside of time. He sees all of this all at once, which means there is no uncertainty when God, when Jesus died on the cross, all those who are his died with him. And when he rose, all those who rose, uh, uh, who are his rose in him, our debt fully paid and our salvation secured. We live in this world of bruises, 
and obstacles of getting knocked down and sometimes not even being able to get back on our feet. Instead, we crawl because it's all we have left. And Peter says, yes, but you have a living hope. His name is Jesus. Your salvation is secure. And in a little while, your glory awaits. So bless the Lord and crawl to the finish line. Right? That is what Peter is saying. Get there. Keep going. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Your living hope and glory awaits. It's been won by Christ. So take the knocks. Take the hits because you know your salvation is secure. And this is what he's writing to a persecuted church. This is writing to people who are suffering, who are facing hard times. And he's like, you have a living hope. Keep going. Now, we, we are in time and we're waiting for the reality of this to come. But for God, it's already occurred. It's already happening. And this is why in Romans 8, if you read through 28 to 30, it says those God has predestined, he has also glorified past tense. Anyone feel particularly glorified at the moment? No. But for God, he says, you are already glorified. Why? Because he is outside of time. He won the victory through the death and resurrection of Jesus. It is secured. It is done. It is finished. And so in God's mind, he says, I already see you glorified. It's, it's won for you. We just have to crawl to that finish line. And our salvation will be there. So Peter says, you were born again by the will of the Father into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead into an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance kept in heaven for you. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Right? That you have been chosen by God into being saved through his mercy through an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance kept for you. In the Old Testament, the focus of the inheritance was around the land, the land that was given to each of the tribes. But we've now moved on to an internal inheritance, the kingdom of heaven. A physical reality sorted, there'll be a new heavens and a new earth, but no longer tied to geographical boundaries. It's the kingdom of God that we inherit. And indeed, even in the Old Testament, this is what they longed for. This was the true hope of the patriarchs. It wasn't actually the land in Israel. Their true hope was the heavenly realm. Let me just give you a quick verse here. It's fascinating to read. This is Hebrews 11, 13 to 16, right? Hebrews 11, 13 to 16. Listen to this. These, the heroes of our faith, all died in faith, although they had not received the things that were promised. But they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. This is your patriarchs, right? They understood that they were temporary residents on the earth. Now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return. But now they desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. 
not our eternal dwelling, our eternal destination. As we know, the Jews lost the land by being unfaithful to God. They were punished. The land was destroyed by invading armies because of unfaithfulness. But that is not the case with our eternal home. And that's why Peter gives us those three words to define why it is so different, right? So firstly, it's imperishable. In other words, it's incorruptible. It cannot perish. It is not conditional. It is not open to come and conquer. It is imperishable. Who will conquer our heavenly home? No one. Right? That's the point Peter's making. It is not conditional. It will never be conquered. It is our imperishable home. Secondly, it's undefiled. Sin will have been done away with. There will be no sin to mar its beauty. It will be pure and perfect forever. The same word here that's used to talk about our eternal home is the same word used to talk about the sinlessness of Jesus. Right? Perfection, perfect, undefiled, not touched by the ravages of sin, imperishable and undefiled, and lastly, unfading. It's truly eternal. God himself will be there and will be our light and that light will never fade. See, I think the greatest curse I can imagine on this earth is to live forever. Honestly, what a horrific thought to watch the decay and corruption of those around you while you just endure. What a terrible thought. Peter says, no, 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 no. We are saved to an imperishable, undefiled, eternal home. Oh my goodness, come on. Right? He's saying it's not like what you've known. No, it's like Christ himself. It is perfect. In that place with God, in an instant, you will be transformed and made like him. And then he goes on to say that God himself will be the one who protects it. That God himself is the one who defends it. God is watching over our eternal home. You cannot get any greater assurance than that. To those facing suffering, Peter has says you are chosen exiles scattered in the world, sealed by the blood of Jesus, born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus into an eternal inheritance that cannot be altered or changed and is kept by the Father himself. That word kept by the Father, back then it meant the walls that were built to protect a city and Peter is saying the wall is God. He keeps the city, our eternal home. He is the one who defends its borders. In other words, he's not literally sitting there with a gun, right? In other words, if God himself is our eternal dwelling, it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's perfect forevermore. Reading this must have given those original hearers great confidence, great strength to keep going, to, to keep proclaiming the good news, to keep professing the hope that they have. 
Sure, they were persecuted, but their hope in the promises of God were greater than the trials they faced. And that is what Peter is just drilling home to them so strongly. And church, this is how we must be. Right? Peter is as much writing this to us as he was then. Yes, our culture is changing. Yes, we see some negatives, right? Not denying that. Yes, there are things we really don't like. Do not give in to fear. Do not lose hope. Because you have a living hope. You have a hope that transcends the cultural changes of this world. Don't box yourself in. Don't hide away. But because you have a living hope, march forward. Tell people of the hope that you profess. Point them to Jesus. That never changes, regardless of how much culture does. Our call is to keep pointing people at Jesus. Keep telling them the good news. And the assurity of our living hope gives us the strength to keep doing that because we are never cowed down. Right? What can the world do to me? Because my hope is secure in Christ. This is what Peter is telling a persecuted church. That's not all. That is verses 3 and 4, but he, we still have verse 5. Peter has told them of that perfect, unblemished, and eternal inheritance, but now he gives us another promise. Right? So he tells them of the eternal, perfect inheritance. But I guess we could still have one final question that we need to bring assurance to, one more element of filling out our hope completely. The question we might have is, it sounds amazing, it sounds perfect, it sounds incredible, but will I make it? Will I be there? What if this perfect, unblemished place is real, but I'm not going to get to be there? And that's verse 5. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now salvation here in being, is in part being used as another word for our inheritance and that's why it's used in the future a salvation that is ready to be revealed. So he's linking it to the inheritance that we've just been talking about. That on that final day, when we inherit the kingdom of God, when we see Christ and we become like him, right? On that day, our salvation will be fully revealed, right? And it says that God, as I said, is guarding that. God is the one defending your salvation. God is the one bringing you through to that heavenly home. And it says how? How's he doing that? Through faith. You're being guarded by God's power through faith. So, as we attack, face attacks in this life, as we face various foes, think of those who were reading this. As people were persecuting them for their faith, Think of the challenges that that posed. And our word says that God is defending you through that faith. 
you're getting persecuted because of your faith, and God assures your salvation through that same faith. How does he do that? Well, you probably know this verse really well. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For you are saved by grace through faith, and that is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Right? Your faith is God's gift, and according to our passage in Peter, he defends his gift. Right? So your faith is God's gift, and he defends his gift. That is why our faith is our security of salvation, because it's God's gift, and he is defending his gift. God will see you fully claim it on that final day. As I said, when you see Jesus face to face, in a moment you are made like him, forever glorified. You are made fit to share in your internal inheritance. You are made fit to dwell in that city of God forevermore. Your salvation is brought about by God himself through Jesus paying the penalty of your sin on the cross. And then God gives you the faith to believe, to cling to Christ the rock. And God says, and I will defend your faith. I will hold you. I will keep you to your eternal salvation because all of it is from God and all of it is meant to result in your eternal undying blessing of God. It's all of Him. He saved you. He will keep you. He will bring you to that imperishable home. He will transform you in an instant to be like Him. He has done it all. And what you give Him in return, what you offer God in return, is simple. It is your praise. It is your thankful heart. It is your undying worship of God for all that He has done. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great mercy has chosen you. Right? Church, come on. How wonderful is this? How amazing is this? Right? This is the word of God. And I pray with you this morning that what it results in is deep, deep, deep thankfulness. A deeply uh, satisfied heart that will speak of God's praise forevermore. That's what we offer back to the Father. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, it's so clear to, to understand the main theme of what this passage tells us. Lord, to a persecuted people, it assured them of their full hope of salvation in Christ. It told them that it's done. It told them that, yes, there's suffering, but a greater hope, a greater glory awaits. And Lord, it also told them that this was of the Father, that their hearts would just well up in thankfulness and praise for God who has done this. Lord, as a church, may we keep no glory for ourselves. 
May we not try and glorify ourselves as a church. Lord, may we just point people again and again and again and again at Jesus. Lord, with thankfulness and praise, may we tell people that he is good. He has secured our salvation. He will bring us home and he will be our light forevermore. Lord, may we be a people of thankful hearts. We pray this in and through your precious name. Amen.